We want to welcome all of you out. Thank you for gathering with us as a church, whether you're uh, doing it at one of our campuses or you're doing it with us through our live stream. We're happy that you're a part of our experience here today as we uh, just enjoy being together as church, as family, and we enjoy coming together to study God's Word and to sing our praises to Him. When I was in college, it was at the same time that the North Anna power plant uh, was being built, and so I worked several summers up there as part of the building crew uh, for the North North Anna power plant. Now, I was a general laborer. What that means is I had no skills whatsoever, and they had hired me to do the grunt work, to do the work that required a good strong back, and I qualified for that. But I would get there every day at 7 o'clock in the morning, and I'd put on my yellow hard hat. Now, that yellow hard hat let everybody know I was low man on the totem pole. Uh, there were other colors, uh, hats. In fact, I was talking with somebody after the first service, and he was an iron worker there. And I asked him, I said, I can't remember, what color hat did you have? He said, I had an orange hat. So they had different hierarchy, depending on the color of your hat. I had the bottom run. And so I'd get there at 7 o'clock in the morning, and what I would do is go down the longest ladder I had ever seen in my life down into the bottom of a hole, bottom of a pit, and that's all it was. It would eventually be the place that would house one of the nuclear reactors, but at this point in time, we're just starting the build on it, and we're down there, and we're pouring concrete to set it on, and we're getting everything done down there. Now, you went down, as I said, first thing in the morning, 7 o'clock, You could come out at lunchtime, and occasionally we did, but truth of the matter is you spent most of your lunch break climbing up and back down the ladder. So most of the time we just stayed down there and ate lunch down in the pit. And so you got there at 7, you left at 5 that afternoon, you climbed back up out of the pit, and you went home. It was a long day. It was a hard day. It was a lot of work that went on during those days. But even with everything that was happening and all the work we were doing, there were times when you had, for brief moments, nothing to do. Maybe you were waiting on somebody else to finish their job so that you could then do what you needed to do next, or you were waiting for them to move some equipment around, or maybe actually waiting for them to do a concrete pour. But you had brief moments where you had nothing to do. But even in those times when you had nothing to do, they had assigned us a task. And the task was to look and watch at the top of the opening of the pit. And if you saw a white hat, now the white hats were the big dogs. They were the folks with Virginia Power. They were the folks with Stone and Webster, who was who we worked for. They, they were the folks that, uh, you know, kind of controlled everything. And they didn't like to see, especially yellow hat people, standing around doing nothing. So in our back pocket, we had a brush. Now, it wasn't a nice soft brush like this. It was a wire bristle brush, you know, like some of you have used to scrape paint off. I didn't want that this morning because I didn't want to rip my Sunday pants. Those of you who grew up poor in the 50s understand that. You got Sunday pants for Easter, and they had to last till the next Easter. So still got that mentality in my head. But we took out our brushes if we saw those white hats at the top, and we began to brush the rebar, began to brush the steel on the premise that what we were doing was cleaning the steel so that when they did the concrete pour, it would adhere to it better. Now, we never did that job any other time in all the days I worked up there. 
The only time you did it is if a white hat was at the top of the pit. So he would see you working. In other words, we really weren't doing any work. We were just going through the motions to look like we did. Well, we do that in life, don't we? Go through the motions sometimes. Maybe we do do it at work. Maybe it's, you know, it's getting close to quitting time. You know, and you don't want to really start a new project, but you can't sit around looking like you're doing nothing. So you look busy. You do something. It's nothing more than rearranging stuff on your desk or, or moving stuff from one place to another in the workroom where you are. You go through the motions. We go through the motions sometimes with our families. You know, maybe your kids say, Daddy, will you play a game with me? Sure, I'll play a game. Love to play a game with you. And then we start playing, and we're not paying any attention to them whatsoever. We're just kind of, uh-huh, uh-huh, and we're watching TV or we're answering emails. We're doing something. We go through the motions at church too, don't we? One of the places where we often go through the motions is in the worship time. Oh, we may do everything right. We may stand at the right time and, uh, you know, we may raise our hands at the right time and, and we lift up our voices at the right time. We're doing it all the right things, but the truth of the matter is we're going through the motions. Today we're in Malachi. The last book of the Old Testament. If you want to go ahead and turn that, we're going to get to it in just a moment. It's fairly easy to find because most of us can kind of get to where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels are, and just come back a little bit. Matthew's right before, I mean, um, Malachi is right before Matthew. But Malachi is addressing, or God is addressing through Malachi, the Hebrew children who are going through the motions. They have experienced so many blessings of God, and yet here they are going through the motions. One of our core values as a church, as the Heights Baptist Church, says that Sunday fuels the lifestyle. And what we mean by that is that worship is more than what happens here. See, worship is more than what takes place up there with the choir and the orchestra, up here with the band and all the different things, with our multi-gen choirs. You know. It's more than that. Worship is more than what we do out here when we sing and we lift up our voices together, when we join in with what they're doing up here. That's not all there is to worship. This is important. This is important. But both of these are just kindling to fuel the fire. They're kindling to get us to experience and be a part of worship day in and day out, 24-7. It is our lifestyle. It is our being. It is what we do that we lift up and honor God through worship in everything, in our decisions, in our choices, in our lifestyle. One of our questions that we encourage one another to ask in our growth process is, how are you worshiping? How are you worshiping? Again, is it just this, watching this wonderful choir and orchestra perform on Sunday morning? 
Is it just singing for a portion of an hour once a week? Or is it more than that? That's what God's calling us to do. That's what God addresses in the book of Malachi. Look at the very first verse of Malachi. Now understand right off the bat that this is not Malachi's thoughts. It's not his words because it tells us that it's the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. This is the word of God speaking to his children. It is significant because it is the last book in the Old Testament. It is the last prophetic word from God before 400 years of silence leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ. And he starts it off this way, and it will vary depending on your translation. Yours may say a pronouncement, an oracle, a message, or it may say a burden. And truthfully, that's the most accurate interpretation of the word. The word there in the Hebrew is a word that means burden. It means foreboding. In other words, he sets the tone right off the bat. He says, what I'm going to share with you is hard. But it is a message that you need to hear. So as God speaks through Malachi in this, it's interesting what takes place in all of this process. In this book, what we see is a series of arguments going on. God says something, and the Hebrew people argue with him. You ever had anybody do that to you? No matter what you said, they wanted to argue with you about it? If you've had a toddler or a teenager, there's probably a good chance that's happened sometime in your life. But God will say something, and they'll argue with him. They'll talk back to him, and then God presents Again, the purpose behind it. In other words, God tells them, they argue, and then God says, here's why. And that's the whole book. That's what happens over and over again. It's it's actually six arguments, six disputes that take place in Malachi. But what he's doing in the process is addressing how we worship. What he's doing in the process is answering the question for them and for us that we ask ourselves. He's telling us how to allow the corporate worship to influence the personal worship. He's telling us to ask and answer the questions of how we worship. And so in the process, what he does is shares with us really three different things about worship. He tells us that worship has an outward element. Worship has an outward element. In other words, that outward element is worship involves how we treat other people. He says it involves how we treat those that are closest to us, family, and then how we treat everybody else. He says that's part of the worship that I desire. A worship that affects your everyday life. A worship that affects your decision making. So, Turn with me over to the second chapter, verse 10. And as he talks about this outward element 
of worship. He says in verse 10, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously towards against one another? He says, oh, it is important how we treat one another because we have a God who created us and who we're called to worship. And then if you go down into the last part of verse 11, he addresses how we operate within the family. But specifically in this, he talks about marriage because marriage is a key to the rest of the family relationships. And he says, here's what you've been doing. Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. God's going to tell us two things in this passage, in this one and what's to follow. And it has to do with marriage. It's this. He tells us, be careful who you marry and be faithful when you marry. Be careful who you marry and be faithful when you marry. And so here he addresses the thing that he has warned them about. He has warned them about marrying into these families who worship other gods. In other words, he is warning them about a believer marrying into the life of an unbeliever. And he says, I've warned you about that. Don't, don't do that. that, that You've got to be careful who you marry. That's part of your experience of walking with me, of worshiping me, of making the right decisions. And so he addresses what he's warned them about. And basically what he's saying in this is re- telling them, he said, you know, what's taking place in the spouse you choose says a lot about what God you're choosing. Are you going to choose to follow me and be obedient to what I have given you? Or are you going to follow her God or his God? So he shares with them this idea, be careful who you marry. And then he says, be faithful when you marry. And he talks about divorce. Now, I I want to be careful because I don't think I made this as clear as I would like to in the first... Here he is talking about one specific thing, one specific kind of divorce that the people were dragging up. You know, the Bible does give some places, a place where divorce is granted. And I think there are situations in times, uh, I had somebody afterwards ask me, would you say somebody should stay in an abusive situation? No, I have more often than you can imagine told people they need to get out of that situation. But that's none of what he's talking about here. He's talking about one specific thing. Look down at verse 16 of chapter 2. He's already gotten on him, fussed at him a little bit. He said, you know, you married this girl. She was the wife of your youth. In other words, she was cute. She was pretty. She was skinny. She had it all going on. He said, now you've both gotten a little older, and now look at what you do. Verse 16. It says, if he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice. In other words, what he's talking about here is one specific thing. He says, this is a divorce in which somebody comes up and says, "Hmm, I don't love her anymore. Used to, don't anymore. Lost my feelings for her. God says, shame on you. He says, there's no such thing as a no-fault divorce. There's no such thing as getting a divorce because we're not in love anymore. 
He said, when you enter into marriage, you stand before people, but you also stand before God, and you enter into a covenant. And he talks here about the covenant relationship of marriage. And he says, that's very, very important. He says, part of the worship of God is making the right choices, doing the right things, and living the right way in our relationships in family, and particularly as the hub of that in marriage. But then he goes on to say, not only do we need to be in worship and careful about what we're doing in this area of family and marriage, he says, we need to also be careful about how we're acting and treating other people. Look down at verse 17. God says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. You know, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, God says, I neither grow faint nor grow weary. Why the difference? In Isaiah, he's talking about physical strength, physical weariness. God's all-powerful. God doesn't get physically weary. God doesn't lose his strength. But he says, boy, your words, they can just weary me. Words of complaint. Words of whining. They ask the question. They argue with him. How have we wearied you? What have we done? What have we said that has caused you to be weary? And he says, when you say everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he's delighted with them, or else where is the God of justice? He said, you weary me when you question my sovereignty. You weary me when you question my justice. And then as he goes into chapter 3, he says, don't you worry about it. I'm sending someone. Judgment is going to come. Don't you worry about it. And then he turns it on them. And what you see here is the divine equivalent of when you were down in the family room in the basement fussing and fighting with your brother or your sister, and you hear your dad upstairs say, do you really want me to come down there? And that's what God is saying to him right here. Do you really want me to come down there? Because look at verse 5 in chapter 3. He says, I will come to you in judgment. You see, what they were complaining about is, God, come down and judge him, judge her, judge them over there. And God says, when I come down, I'm judging everybody. And that includes you. He says, and I'm going to judge you for some of the things you're doing against one another. And he goes on there. He says, I'm going to be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of the armies. He says, I'm going to come down and I'm going to deal with y'all because y'all are treating one another unjustly. Y'all are treating one another in a way that doesn't honor me and doesn't bring worship to me. He says, you're oppressing one another. You're lying to one another. You're not taking care of widows and orphans. He says, judgment's coming. Don't you worry about that. He said, you worry about how you're treating each other. Because worship 
has an outward element. But worship also has an inward element. Turn back to chapter 1. We're going to pick up reading in verse 6 of chapter 1. And God says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies to you priests who despise my name. Yet you ask, they go arguing again, How have we despised your name? By presenting food on my, defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask, when you say the Lord's table is contemptible? Now turn over to chapter 3, picking up in verse 7. It says, Since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statutes, you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. And again, they argue. How do we rob you? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You're suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. In both those passages, he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about giving. In the first one, he's talking about giving the sacrifice. In the second one, he's talking about giving the tithe. But both of them, he's talking about giving and the fact that they are withholding what they give and honor God with. In chapter 1, verse 8, he tells them what their problem is in the giving of the sacrifice. He says, when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? When you present a lame or a sick animal, is it not wrong? Now, that's a rhetorical question because they knew the answer to that. The sacrificial system was very clearly laid out. They knew it was wrong to bring a blind animal. They knew it was wrong to bring a lame animal, a sick animal to it. See, you got to understand, the, the whole sacrificial system was set up by God in a way that was both symbolic of and foreshadowing for what was to come later. And so what was taking place in the sacrificial system that God had set up is that they were bringing to God their very best. They were bringing to God that which most closely represented a perfect sacrifice. Symbolic of what would happen when Jesus Christ came, foreshadowing what would happen when Jesus Christ came. It was a picture uh, that he was painting already of what was going to happen when God, the Father, gave his very best, gave his most precious, his son, Jesus Christ, as the perfect sacrifice for all of our sins for all time. See, God is telling them and telling us in that process that what's taking place is that God the Father is showing us He wants our best and our all. You see, we look at these things and they're actions. They're things we do, giving the sacrifice, giving the tithe. But what they really are are reflective of what's going on in the inside. See, God is getting the people of that day and the people of our day to understand 
that our actions are affected by our affections. What we love, what we desire, what are the priorities of our lives, that's what rules and reigns in our actions. And he says, so are you in tune with me and worshiping me and loving me? Or is something less happening? And then when he gets over to the tithes, he's reminding them that, you know, it's not a process of giving bits and pieces to God. It's not a process of trying to do the the smallest amount you can or the least little bit you can. It is a process of surrendering ourselves to God. It is a process of um, aligning ourselves with God and what he is doing. It is a process of giving our best and our all to him. And then he moves into the most obvious element of worship, the upward element. Go back to the first chapter. Right after he has shared with them that I am presenting a heavy, heavy message. It's going to be a message you don't want to hear. He's telling them and he's telling us. He said, but I want you to understand one thing up front. Look at verse 2. After saying this is a message of foreboding, he says, understand this. I have Loved you, said the Lord. And that's not a past tense expression. It is a continuing expression. What he is saying is, I have loved you through it all. I've loved you in your high points and I've loved you in your low points, Israel. He said, I've loved you when you've been obedient and I've loved you when you've been disobedient. I've loved you throughout the whole journey, and hear me, I love you still. And for us, the message is the same. He has loved us through the high points and the low points. He has loved us in our sin as well as our obedience. In fact, what did Paul say? God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, when we were at our lowest, God loved us. And so he says, I want you to understand that. And folks, I think it's really important in our day, in our time, and in our culture, because we live in a time where so many people want to say, well, you know, my faith, my religion, it's a private thing. I, I don't really discuss it with anybody. I'm going to tell you up front, that's contrary to what the Bible teaches us about our faith. But then they also go on to say, and it's not only private, but it's personal. In other words, it's something I've kind of come up with. I've figured out on my own. I've, I've developed myself. And the problem with that private, personal uh, adaption of God is that we end up with a representation of God that's kind of vague. It's not filled with the truth of God, the truth of Him as revealed in His Word. The truth is revealed in a genuine faith walk with Him. Just kind of this foggy thing that's out there. And what that does is it causes us to begin to question God when the situations and the circumstances don't match up with the picture and the plan that we had. And God says, I want you to understand that I am God. I am sovereign. I am over all. 
And whether you always understand it or not, I do. I'm in control. And so he wants us to understand his truth, but he also wants us to fear him in the experience of walking with him. And now, by fearing, what does he mean? He means to honor him, to reverence him in all of that. Look over to chapter 3 again. In verse 13, he says, Your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. What do they do? Argue. Yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? What if we haven't said anything bad against God? He says, you've said it's useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully through the Lord, uh, before the Lord of armies? See, when you got that vague understanding, that vague representation of God, that's the kind of thing that happens. So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. And then look at verse 16. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies, my own possession on the day I am preparing. See, God desires us to fear him as in reverence him, honor him. And the most amazing thing happens when we begin to fear God in that way, the other fears take care of themselves. All the other things in life that scare us, if we keep a proper perspective of God, we can handle them. And look over at the very end of the book, chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. He says, Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statues and the ordinances I, I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. God says a part of the upward element of worship is not only that you understand my truth and not only that you fear and reverence me, but he said it's also that you experience hope. He says to this tribe of people 400 years before Christ would come, he says to them, look back at what I've done and look forward to what's to come. So they looked back a thousand years and they saw themselves being delivered out of slavery, being brought out of Egypt. And they looked ahead to the coming of a Messiah, a Savior who would free them from, this, uh, as from slavery of sin. And for us today, we look back and we see the coming of Jesus Christ who died on the cross and paid the price for our sins that we might have forgiveness and we might have everlasting life. And then we look forward to his second coming and we find hope and we find joy and we find peace in that. So worship is outward. Worship is inward. Worship is upward. That's what God teaches us through Malachi. But there is a question that emerges out of the book of Malachi. It's the same question that emerges out of the Old Testament. It's 
the question that is central to the Bible itself. And it is a question that comes from God. And it's this. Will you turn from your sins to God? Will you turn from your sins to God? Will you turn from your sins to God? Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. And Father, we will acknowledge this has been a heavy message. A message that has challenged us about our worship, about our walk. Father, speak to our hearts now. May we ask within ourselves the question, will I turn from my sin to God? And we may, may we answer that. From the foundation, the base of where we are, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.